This is Unorthodox, and this week it's just me, Josh, the producer, Josh Gross, with a K. And this episode, I'm bringing you a couple of really special interviews from our live show in Phoenix back in December. We had two Jews of the week, Phoenix rock star rabbis Shmuley Yanklowitz and Pinchas Alush. Dr. Shmuley Yanklowitz is the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash, and Rabbi Pinchas Alush is the founding rabbi of Congregation Beth Tefillah, and both have amazing stories to tell about their work in the Valley of the Sun. And speaking of sons, our Gentile of the Week is basketball legend and NBA Hall of Famer Paul Westfall, who also served as the coach for the Phoenix Suns, among his many other achievements. Come for his awesome story about why he didn't play for the legendary coach John Wooden, and stay for one of the thorniest Gentile of the Week questions ever. Also, after the interviews, I'm going to bring you a little taste of something our three hosts recently did together for another podcast. But without further ado, I'll now take you to the Valley of the Sun JCC in Phoenix, Arizona. biggest rabbis in Phoenix here with us tonight. Rabbi Dr. Shmuley Yanklowitz is the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash, and Rabbi Pinchas Alush is the founding rabbi of Congregation Beth Tefillah in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah! Come on up. Come. Come. Lazi. Welcome, Rabbanam. Because we don't usually have two guests, because things can get really off the rails, so we'll see what happens here. (laughs) Um, Rabbis? I'm going to call you, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out what we're going to call you, but um, let's start off with this question for both of you. Why is this Jewish community different from all other Hold Jews? Hold on, Stephanie, Whoa. sorry, that's loud. Mark, this is why all the people who don't touch the mic don't have problems. There we go. How's that better, Josh? Yeah. All right, there we go. Sorry, Stephanie. So let's start off, because there's like no spoilers here, because, I mean, it's only spoilers. So, rabbis, why is this Jewish community different from all other Jewish communities? <laughs> Are you guys even Jewish? You're like letting each other speak. <laughs> well, it's an excellent question. Um, you want to answer first, Funny? All right. So uh, I think for two main reasons. Number one, it's a community that um, has just been founded really in the past few decades. Uh, other communities are centuries old. This community is quite new and therefore its future is still very much ahead of it. Uh, I think that's why many people are, are really attracted to the potential of the community year as I was when I first moved here 13 years ago. And uh, it's buzzing with excitement. That's number one. Number two, I also think that it's a community. It's quite diverse. And it's diverse in its culture. It's diverse in its levels of observance, of background. Uh, but it's not just the diversity that is attracting and that is uh, quite uh, unique to Phoenix, but it's the unity within the diversity. I truly feel that we're a united community, uh, which can't be said about Kiddush committees that Leo was speaking about before in other places. So those are the two main things that I see uh, almost immediately. Amazing. Yeah. Um, well, two things I'd say. When I was thinking about moving here, I'm now in the middle of my seventh year, the two uh, points that people shared as to why I shouldn't consider it, they said it's an intellectual wasteland which is totally untrue. We have people coming out to our learning events every night who are interested in ideas. And secondly, they said it's a morally passive community, very private, very individualistic, which is also completely untrue. When we have uh, various activist campaigns, we have people lined up lined up to, to show support. Who said that, and should we beat them up? Yeah, are they here? Do you want to publicly shame them? we got a big them? crowd here that can go after them. We have the J crew here. That's right. So I, 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 want, I want to address the thing that you just said. So I'm, I'm kind of a two minds about the activism angle. There's a part of me that thinks 
that it's really beautiful and essential for a community of faith to be very involved in you know, social, political uh, elements and, and feel this kind of moral calling. And it's another part of me that you know, is a little bit kind of taken aback by how dominant this political discussion has become and just you know, want to go to shul just to hear you know, the Dvar Torah, just to be together with other Jews and, and worry about that later some other place. How should we be feeling about its connection between social justice and Yeah, that's religion? a great question. So Rambam, Maimonides, in the third uh, section of his Guide for the Perplexed, says, what's the purpose of all this Jewish stuff? And his answer is the welfare of the body and the welfare of the soul. By which he means, the well, if you have to know a little Plato there, which you probably do, the welfare of the body means the just state, and the welfare of the soul means the perfection of the intellect. So basically, the goal of Judaism, in his view, is our inner life and our outer life, which is to say the inner life is our ritual, our beliefs, our spirituality, the stuff you're touching on, and the outer life, which he comes to say becomes the priority, is that Jews should be on the front and center of fostering the just society. And so I think we have a problem today. I think that uh, the traditional segment of Jewish life prioritizes the parochial and the traditional and not the universal. And I think the more liberal segments of Jewish life prioritize the universal and less of the, less of the traditional. And this middle ground of saying that, yes, we care about the world, we care about society, and we care about Jews. That complete package is what we're working for. Penny, do you agree? He told us to call him that. Yeah, that's with pleasure. No, no problem. We go way back, like 20 minutes back. <laughs> My rabbi calls me Penny, so all my friends do, so no problem. I, I would agree with that. I would say, though, that uh, there needs to be a healthy balance, of course, between the two, because if, uh, almost like Mark Twain said, some people are so open-minded that their brains spill out. Sometimes we're so much in the open that we forget the message. And so we have to be both steeped in the roots of Judaism, very much so, and yet not forget our calling to go to the outside, I'll point out also that if there is an emphasis in Judaism on which side counts the most, it's the outside. If you think of the idea of mitzvah, most of the 613 mitzvot are outside-oriented. They deal with the world. They don't really deal with the internal world. I, I can only think, I don't know, maybe you can think of more, of, of two mitzvahs on top of the mind that deal with the inside, prayer, Torah study, but otherwise everything else really deals with the outside. So there is, I do find this emphasis on tikkun olam, on trying to rectify the world, of course, with God's light and with God's message, but on the other hand, also not forgetting where we come from, not forgetting to be as steeped in our roots as possible. Something we talk about a lot on the show is this idea that a lot of Jews today don't necessarily feel like they can just walk into a synagogue and be welcomed or would even feel comfortable there, or would even know how to get there. Um, what do you think is the best way to connect with Jews who don't, haven't necessarily found their place within the institutional Jewish world as we they know They should it? go to Rabbi Elushin synagogue. Oh, thank you. They should go to the Valley Bet Midrash too. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Shmuley. I was first before. You go second. I'm, I'm sorry. What, are, what are these guys? <laughs> guys, we have a reputation to uphold. What do you think? This is Geneva? Come on. These guys could pull off a juku. They've got the organization. Right. They've got the intellect. They're ready. And you wouldn't see it coming. That's right. Be stealthy. I think it's a fascinating question. And I think that Jews are really good at alienating one another. It's true. And I think that the percentages of Jews who are not engaged, not because they're disinterested, but because they've been alienated, is also very high. And I think the challenge here is to embrace a pluralism which does not bracket our absolutes, but creates space for other absolutes. That means that for those of us who are really fervent in our beliefs, we learn how to create space for others. And those who are more relativistic um, and, and actually don't hold views are, are able to cultivate those in our space. 
I'm worried about those on the margins. I'm worried about single folks who have, have had, had trouble finding partners. I'm worried of people of color who feel alienated, those of lower socioeconomic status who feel alienated, um, those who are converts, all types of marginalized Jews that I think our establishments can do better at being inclusive, those with physical disabilities or and, and really a whole host of others. And I think our community is very good at embracing those who naturally fit in. I would agree also. I think it's, it's an excellent question because you hit it right on the nail. I think the biggest challenge we have as rabbis is to make Judaism not just relevant but also accessible. Um, and I would say that the lenses I try to wear as a rabbi, and I think that all Jews should try to wear, is the lenses of what my rabbi teaches in his book, We Jews, uh, Dean Steinsaltz. Um, he came up, I think, with the idea, he was the first one, and since then I've heard it many times. But he came up with this idea that Judaism is not a religion. I don't approach another Jew because of religion, nor do I approach another Jew because he's part of my ethnic group. Judaism is not an ethnic group. Judaism is also not a nationality. We don't have to live in Israel to be Jewish. What is Judaism? Judaism is a family. I approach another Jew because he's my family. And yes, you could have two Jews and seven opinions, but um, as another rabbi of mine taught, it's one heart. And we can't forget that. We do have one heart. We, we are part of, of that same family. What unites us is much greater than what divides us, as the cliche goes. But it's not just a cliche, it's the truth. And therefore, uh, no Jew is better than me. We all have the same soul. No Jew is wiser than me. No Jew is deeper than me. I think every Jew, in a way, is uh, a part of God, and you can't add measurements to divinity, to the infinity. God is God, and a Jew is that reflection of God. He has that Jewish soul, and together as a family, that's what unites us. That's what we celebrate. There's that great bit in Mishnah where they say that, you know, the, why did God make us all descended from the same couple so that nobody could say your father's better than my father? Exactly. Right? Exactly. It's, it's very like good. So, so <laughs> true. Um, I want to hear a little bit about, about your journeys. I'm always like, these guys know I'm obsessed with rabbis' journeys because it's such a, it's such a weird profession. I mean, obviously you go into it for the money, but <laughs> it's... <laughs> You know, the money and, and the, the hours are good, right? You're off at 4.30, oh, right. 5. In, and, but, but weekends so, off. Weekends off, right? Uh, restful Shabbos. But there's so many other reasons that people go in. Every rabbi seems to have a different journey. Um, and I want to hear from each of you about, like, you, you both gone, traveled pretty far. Um, Shmuley, you weren't Shmuley. Right. You were like Steve? <laughs> pretty, pretty close. Sean? Steve's my, Steve's my, Sean. Sean. Which is like every Irish kid I grew up with in Massachusetts was Sean. But if you show up in yeshiva with the name Sean, you get beat up. So I had to make a little switch. There. Before we go into your journey, yeah, I got to ask. Right. So you, you need a Jew with your name, right? You're Sean. That's not going to fly. Shimon, Shmuley, Shlomo. How do you spell in Shmuley? <laughs> so um, I said to my father, I said, they're asking for my Hebrew name. What is it? He said, oh, I asked my father the same question. And I, and, and I said, well, what did he say? He said, well, I'm Shmuel, so you're Shmuel. So my dad said, I'm Shmuel, so you're Shmuel too. And my brother said, what am I? He said, you're Shmuel. So the whole family was Shmuels. It was unbelievable. So then I got invited to a Shabbos dinner. I said, my name is Shmuel. And she says, Shmuley, grab me the guacamole. So I got it for her and it was Shmuley stuck. Boom. Yeah, boom. Yeah. All right. So tell me about your journeys, Jen. Now, Pinchas. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to you in a second, but. <laughs> go, go for it. Go. He's Were you probably Phineas more interested. Yeah, Pinchas' name was actually Jim. And <laughs> <laughs> So Shmuley, what's your, Rabbi, what's your journey? Wow. Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll share two snapshots. One was that I'm at my Catholic grandmother's deathbed. And I did what any grandchild uh, does when talking to a grandparent. How are you? Good. What's new? Nothing. And I walked out of the room and down the hospital hallway, and I started to cry. 
And I realized that I was someone who could create an experience for her, a memory at that moment, and I didn't know how to do it. And so I walked back shaking in next to her bed and I held her hand and I said, Nanny, can I pray with you? And I was scared to even say that as, uh, as a teenager. And in that moment, I said, I wanna help to create spiritual experiences with people, especially in their time of vulnerability. So that was snapshot one. Snapshot two was, I went over a dozen times with American Jewish World Service to the Global South. And I was raised, um, you know, in a white interfaith, uh, upper middle class family, fairly obli oblivious of anything other than an achievement ladder. You go to high school, you get into a better college, you get a better career, you try to make money, you, try, you maintain all that. And then I immersed myself over a dozen times in villages um, of some of the most poor people on the planet. And people introduced me to Jewish texts that actually talked about vulnerability and about poverty and about justice. And that helped me to awaken to this idea that actually Jewish values were relevant in the world and they were relevant as a transformative vehicle towards um, helping to heal a, a, a fragmented world. So those two moments, um, the quiet moment alone with someone and the moment thinking globally were moments that put me on this path and I transitioned. I was in the ultra-Orthodox world at one point. I was in the religious Zionist world living on a hilltop in a caravan. I was in something called open orthodoxy, operated in a pluralistic space and, and, and to some degrees moved beyond all of that where I see myself primarily immersed in the world of Jewish learning, of Jewish values, and struggling to live that, but uh, myself a work in product. Now, Pinchas, you too moved, moved around quite a bit. Physically, you moved around quite a bit. Physically, we did move around quite a bit. Yes, I was born in France, in Toulouse, France, um, at the age of eight. That's, by the way, why you're wearing these elegant socks. <laughs> you have a good eye. Good. So, um, at the age of eight, I moved to South Africa. My family moved to South Africa. We lived there for almost six years. And then uh, we made Aliyah, we moved to Israel. Um, I was enrolled in a yeshiva tichonita high school yeshiva, the high school yeshiva of my rabbi that I mentioned before, Adin Steinsaltz. And I was on a path, on a very clear path as most kids in those structures are, going to the army, maybe to Hesder, which is a combination of some yeshiva, some, uh, yeshiva years and army years. And then I thought of becoming an attorney. And at the age of 18, when I applied, did all the tests to go to the Israeli army, I, um, I, was, I was going through um, some medical checkups, and they told me, sorry, you can't go. Your profile is number 21, which means you can't go to the army. Uh, I said, why? They said, well, you have a genetic disease that we don't know what to do uh, with it. I have a Sephardic genetic disease called FMF, familial Mediterranean fever, which is really not, not such a dangerous disease. I just take colchicine pills each and every day, and that uh, prevents abdominal pains. So I had an existential crisis. I don't know what to do. All of a sudden, my plans were thrown uh, out the window. And I went and I uh, spoke to my rabbi about it, Adin Steinsaltz, and I'll mention it maybe a thousand more times here. Everyone drink. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I just <laughs> yes. can I take this opportunity yes, please. to say, really, first of all, one of the most brilliant minds. If anyone in this room is seriously interested in, in studying Talmud, but is a little bit afraid because it's this complicated book with all the columns in all the wrong places and tiny letters and languages and scripts that you don't understand, Rabbi Steinsaltz put together an astonishing, astonishing, astonishing edition with very clear English translation with little annotations on the side. I'm now working with my children off of that book. It is incredible and accessible, 42 volumes. Uh, you should really <laughs> check it out. End of advertising. Go ahead. That's right. And in addition to that, he has about 70 books on Jewish thought. Each one of them is a gem. 
So you all come to go to Amazon or anywhere else and buy them. But um, so my rabbi advised me at this age of 18, well, I don't exactly know what to do. Well, there was a, there, I just heard that there's a spot that opened up in the Jewish community in Geneva. Why don't you go and be the youth director and help them out with some adult education? I said, fine. And I moved to Geneva. I spoke the language, French. And for the first time, I really felt a sense of tremendous fulfillment. And I said to myself, gosh, maybe that's what I should become, a rabbi, trying to help out others. And, and I, had, I really had this epiphany throughout this experience where I said to myself, okay, that's really what life is about. Not asking what I need, but what I'm needed for. Not asking what I want, but what I can give. Not asking what I can uh, take, but what I can really contribute to society. And that gave birth to this calling of becoming a rabbi. Then I went to rabbinic school in Italy and back to Israel, moved to Atlanta and then to Arizona. So, Penny, if I may, um, you mentioned Judaism as a family. I would like to talk about your family. Is it true you have nine children? It's true, yes, yes, I'm very proud of it. (laughs) What? That's two more than the three of us combined. (laughs) Do you know all their birthdays? I I think I do. <laughs> can you can you just name them in order? Because I feel like they probably have good names. Sure, they have great names. So the first one is Mendeley, second is Israel, third is Ben Sion, fourth is Yaakov, fifth is Nina. So we had a girl after four boys. That's why we kept on trying. But then we said, wow, girls are great. Why not create some more? <laughs> so after Nina comes Ephraim, another boy, then Sarah, then Rashi Khanna, and then Asher Rafael, who was born in the car on the way to the hospital on the night of Simchat Torah just two years ago. Wow. All right, so now what we need from you, some solid parenting advice. <laughs> Please. And, and by the way, from Sean over here too, because <laughs> you have four kids. We'll and, get to him. In okay, a, all right. In a all, right all right. Didn't mean to, didn't um, mean to jump ahead there. I, I'm no expert. I do have a little experience, but I'm not expert. How old are, what's the age range? So the oldest is 18. Okay. The youngest is two. Um, I would say if I had to condense it all into one advice, I would put it really in three words. Let them be. Let them be. And what I mean by that is let them be fully, wholesomely. Every child is unique. I have nine. I kept on trying because I thought maybe two will be identical. But no, that's not the way it works. And every child is unique. And I think every child needs to feel and to know that he is unique and to develop that uniqueness. The way we have to do that as parents is not to suffocate them with our impositions, with our way of viewing the world, but quite the opposite, to let them, to engage them in seeing the world with their own uniqueness, with their own eyes, and uh, hopefully developing the talents that God gave them, the calling that God gave them, and uh, eventually the gift that they have to, for the world that God gave them. Uh, Isaiah says, In other words, God tells us, Before I created you in your womb, I knew you. In other words, God already decided who we will be. He knew who we will be before we were even born. Which really means that parents have no say in who their children will be. (laughs) Sounds convenient. We, We just have to let them be. I kind of, I agree that we have very little say. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how peripheral we feel once they start kind of efflorescing into themselves. That's I think correct. that's been my feeling exactly. So Schmools, four kids plus you foster children as well, right? What is that like? Which part? <laughs> Let's start with the four kids and okay. then we'll add on the 
other children that are always sort of part of your family as well? Well, I also don't have advice, but if I were to say something, it would be that what triggers me tells me more about me than them. It goes back to the inner life and outer life. I learn my spiritual work by what triggers me in my relationship with them the things that drive me crazy, the things that are most challenging. Uh, and so I view it as, as my primary spiritual work these days is, is in parenting. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say there. Um, the second thing, uh, actually, they teach me prayer because recently I was praying out loud. I was praying for health and for our success and my son leans in. He must have thought there was a channel above me. And he says, for a Batmobile. <laughs> and, so, and so I did what any modern person does when something like that happens. I posted the story on Facebook. And so the next day, a box arrives at our house, and it says, to Lev, from God, God hears all prayers. <gasps> so this is really wonderful. He's really excited. He gets the biggest Batmobile you could possibly imagine. <laughs> if you ever see a, a five-year-old riding a Batmobile down the road, that's Lev Yanklowitz. But now we have a theology problem in our house. <laughs> Every night we have this problem. But the fostering is a whole other story. And um, spiritually, for me, it is about that I feel alienated in the world. I feel alienated from God. I feel alienated from, you know, a, a, a certain brokenness. Much more to say there another time. But morally, it's the issue I can't sleep at night. I can't sleep at night if there's one issue more than any other. It is children who are abused or neglected. And so we've been fortunate to have now uh, six children in our house. We just got a call two days ago for another child who's going to be joining us, God willing, soon. And we say to our kids every time, all, we say to the four of them, do you want a child to come in this house? They're gonna take your toys, they're gonna to smell different, they're gonna look different, they're gonna cry in the middle of the night all night. And every time all four of them said, yes, get them here now, every time. And so I'm doing a lot of things wrong in my parenting, but I think I'm doing, there must be something my wife is doing right that they're saying yes. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing. Wow. So unfortunately, we don't have all night with you guys, which would be amazing. I have two questions for both of you. Number one, I want to know, and this just occurred to me, I have two Orthodox rabbis here with lots of children. How will you react if one of your children comes home from college madly in love with a non-Jew? And number two, very different question, if somebody here wants to do, take a first step into more Jewish learning, where do you send them? What do you tell them to do? Well, the first thing is that my goal in raising my kids Jewish is not to make them Jewish. My goal is to combat the study of the University of Michigan in the 1970s that showed that in, in the last few decades since the 70s, the capacity for empathy in America has dropped 40%. That is to say that a man has more trouble today understanding what it's like to be a woman. A white person has more trouble understanding what it's like to be a person of color, right? My Jewish education, as I see it, is about cultivating a mensch. It's about cultivating the capacity for empathy. Now, I love Judaism, and I hope the capacity for empathy and that love for learning that cultivates that leads towards deeper Jewish commitment. But I'm more interested in Jews thriving than surviving. So I'm not interested in mechanisms that are more fear-based of how do we get Jews to stay Jewish. I'm interested in Jews becoming amazing human beings, and I think Judaism has a lot to offer to get there. I, at least philosophically, don't have a problem with intermarriage. I won't perform one for various reasons, but I think we should do all we can to bring interfaith families closer rather than further. And if one of my children were to choose to intermarry, most likely that means that they don't want Judaism to be super central in their life. Because if you want Judaism to be super central in your life, then you probably want to marry someone that also wants that. Of course, there's tons of exceptions to that, but some of the best Jews I know are intermarried. And to be sure, I wouldn't exist in the world without intermarriage, so I'm a little biased, uh, having had parents that were, that were intermarried. That was the answer to the first question. And the second, where to send someone who wants to learn? It depends what they want to learn. I think one of the best experiences in going to Israel 
and seeing Judaism alive in the state. Um, I think those who um, are looking for spiritual immersion should go on a meditation retreat, right? There's those who want to go on a Musar retreat. There's those who want to engage in intellectual learning, those who need healing. So there's lots of different places. But our model at Valley Beit Midrash is that we want to ask the most intellectual, most relevant moral questions of our time that we're not interested in intro to Judaism, as important as that is, but we want to challenge people to think most critically about how they live, about how the state of the Jews today, and to bring in the best scholars. We bring in about 40 to 50 scholars a year here into town, and we're getting calls from other cities for expansion in order to say that actually Judaism can and must compete with the strongest ideas out in the marketplace today, and we have a lot to offer. Okay, so uh, the answer to your first question, what would I do if my son after college comes home with a non-Jew that he would like to marry. First, my love to my children is unconditional. And if that's where your question was going to, then my love wouldn't be hurt whatsoever, wouldn't be restrained whatsoever. I'd probably love them more if he or she was to come with a non-Jew home. I think, like Shmuley, that the, uh, the answer to this question really begins way before. How much have I imbued my children with the Jewish values that I'd like them to have? And uh, how much have I allowed their unique Jewish soul, like we were speaking about before, to truly blossom. And I am of a firm belief that if they are truly given that liberty to exercise their Jewishness, then that question is less likely to, to actualize itself. But again, to answer your question, I'd love them even more and embrace them even more. And uh, my child is my child is my child, no matter what. That's number one. Number two, it's a good question. I really think that it depends on the person asking me that question. Everyone, I think that's the beauty of our congregation, congregation Betafila, that really embraces the diversity of each, each and every Jew. Everyone is different, and therefore everyone connects to Judaism in their own way. But I will add to this, and I th I'm a big believer in action. Action far supersedes thought, even learning. I think the more you do, the more you become that which you do. And therefore, I would place a great emphasis on actual mitzvahs. And I would advise that person, take upon yourself a mitzvah, whatever mitzvah you want, whether it's giving charity every day or putting on tefillin every day or whatever it may be, but do it repetitively. Because as Maimonides writes and so many other write, you know, it's the action that leads the heart, not the heart that leads the action. I would, you know, quoting my rabbi again, Rabbi Steinsaltz. But I once I didn't know asked him. he was your rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's, it, what's his name? <laughs> Doesn't he have a great Talmudic addition? <laughs> but in any case, I once asked him if he had to condense the message of Judaism to one word, what would it be? I've thought that he would say the word Torah, or love, kindness, mitzvah, empathy. He said consistency. Consistency. Judaism is big into consistency. The more you repeat those deeds, the more you become those deeds, because we are what we do. Amen to that. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Rabbi Shmuley Anklowitz, Rabbi Pinchas Alush, I look forward to your like buddy cop comedy. It'll be like Shmuley and Penny. <laughs> and like what capers they get into. What network would that be on? It would be on, it would Cozy? be a movie. It would be like, on, it would be like a, a movie in the movie theaters. Yeah. Like Stuber. It'd be like, I was just gonna say Stuber. <laughs> nice. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. 
Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Let's bring up our Gentile of the Week. Paul Westfall is an NBA Hall of Fame player and the former coach of the Phoenix Suns, a local celebrity, a local hero. Come on up. Come close. Paul, do you wear the Masada hat every day or just for us? (laughs) I wear it a lot. I love it. It's a fantastic hat. It is. I, I picked it up in Israel a couple of years ago, and um, I wear it on special occasions. Now, did you climb up by foot, or did you take the trolley up? <laughs> no, I'm I, the trolley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We were there. It was like June. Nobody's walking up in June. No. <laughs> so here's a question. You've been a player. You've been a coach. You've been an NBA legend for a very long time. You've had a chance to observe actively this league, I assume, changing quite a bit. What, what, what do you see? How, how has the NBA or professional sports in general changed in your time? Well, a little bit before my time, a time that I can remember, the Jews ruled the NBA. You know, there were... Uh, so true. Dolph Shays was, was, was a great player, Red Auerbach. I, I played for the Celtics. Red Auerbach was no longer the coach, but he had built the Boston Celtics, and he gave me the greatest advice I ever had. He said, uh, dress British and think Yiddish. 
And you're dressing Yiddish tonight. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he told you to open an IRA, squirrel some money no, away. No. And it was like, no, no. He said that, and he also said, rent, don't buy, kid. And, um, <laughs> you know, he just didn't want me to be too comfortable because he there. was going to trade you. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. But, um, no, the NBA has changed. I think that, that the biggest thing um, to guarantee contracts, regardless of performance, has given the players a lot of power. And also the... Oh, I don't know. Just, just the, the three-point shot has taken away a lot of the subtleties of the game. Now, every team runs the same offense. They come down and see how many – just spread out and see how many three-pointers you can shoot. I, I think the game has changed a lot from those two things. Uh, I, I really liked it better when the teams had an individual identity and uh, the offenses had to be a little bit more subtle and the players – at least had to act like they wanted to hear what uh, what the what the coach said. This is one reason that I'm so baffled by this particular sport and, and also so curious about it. You're sitting there as a coach and you're looking at a, a roster of guys, some of whom make tremendous amounts of money and have their own increasingly independent mechanisms of communicating with the public. How do you coach guys like that? How do you assert your authority? You have to have players that... Uh, willingly accept that and there are a lot of them but people that understand the game it's a beautiful game when you do it together as a team and when you sacrifice for the good of the group uh, that's the nature of basketball that's the essence of the way basketball is supposed to be but it isn't always that way and uh, usually if you have a team that that will play together that is talented you can look real smart as a coach and if you have players that won't do that, that are on their own agenda, you get fired. Did it take you a while to sort of find your, your Zen, your coach philosophy? Or, or is that something that you prepare theoretically and then impose on the players? Oh, I think that, that uh, for me, it, w it was a constant learning uh, experience, you know, starting when I was in elementary school. And we had a coach who made us cut our fingernails before the game. And he said, because you have to respect your opponent because you don't want to scratch and hurt them. Uh, just little things, somebody that noticed little things. I had a high school coach who was great at telling us, don't be afraid to make a mistake. Uh, you know, the aggressive team is the one that wins. And I was, was close throughout from, from junior high school on, even though I didn't go to UCLA, I uh, got to be close with Coach John Wooden and studied his teachings and, and what a fantastic teacher and example he was. And then being with the Celtics with Red Auerbach, who's the greatest NBA coach of all time, and uh, try to pick up and steal whatever I can from any of them. And it, it always evolves because you can always learn something more. And uh, it was a fantastic ride uh, just learning the principles from these great men. I was told I have to ask you why you went to USC instead of UCLA. <laughs> that, that's, that, at the time, that, it was a very controversial thing. I was a leading scorer in California history and all this stuff, and I could have gone to any of the colleges I want. I wanted to stay at S, in California, in, in Los Angeles, and SC was a football school. Uh, with John McKay and all those guys, and, and uh, UCLA was the basketball school. They won championships every year. And um, one of the big reasons I wanted to go to SC was to, if we could put together a team that could beat them, that would be a bigger deal than just join the, the parade of championships. The, the, so the challenge of beating somebody that was that great and that we respected so much, that was, 
That, that, that was a major part of it. And before Coach Wooden died, he came out and spoke to a team when I was coaching at Pepperdine. He was unbelievable. He was, he was in his mid-90s, and he came out and watched practice, and people had him signing books the whole time. He couldn't even watch. He's a signing signing something personal to everybody and still watching. And afterward, he talked to our team and all the other teams in the school heard that Coach John Wooden was there talking, and they all came to listen to him. And he talked for about an hour, and he remembered details from 50 years ago. And just a brilliant mind. His mind never left him. Anyway, I drove him back after this, and he lived in Encino. And I drove from Malibu to Encino. We had a lot of time in the car, and he says, Paul, you know, I've heard your explanations, and I think there's more to it. How come you really didn't go to UCLA? And I won't mention the players' names, but there were a couple players that are selfish racists. I wouldn't have got along with them, and they wouldn't have got along with me. And uh, I said, Coach, I just couldn't have seen myself being on the team with those guys. And he said, I can understand that, because <laughs> he knew them. But... Uh, I think that in basketball, I mean, that was his genius. He could take people from all different mentalities. You know, you talk about, the, I was talking about how if a guy has a guaranteed contract, he's liable to be more selfish. Coach Wooden had a way of getting through to everybody. He had his, his standards, and they had to live up to them, but he could, he could deal with idiosyncrasies and, and make the whole better than the sum of the parts. So he was brilliant. I... I uh, I, I loved getting to know him. You seem to be a very principled person, sort of based on these, these few anecdotes. I'm curious, is faith a, an important part of your life, and does it sort of impact the decisions you're making? Absolutely. I, I think that uh, faith is the foundation of everything, and it, it's so fantastic to be speaking to you know, a group of Jewish people uh, because I, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because of the Jews. You know, I have a friend who's a Jewish man who wrote a book called uh, Jesus Was Not a Christian. And it's, it's very true. He was, he was Jewish as could be. And, uh, yeah, they don't make Jews like him anymore. No, no, no. <laughs> There's a song that says that, you know, Kinky Friedman, you know him? My great Jew. <laughs> but um, a- absolutely. And both, both Testaments of the Bible, there, there's the statement that if you seek God with all your heart, you will find. And um, what's more important than that? And, and to me, because I'm a big picture guy, what's a bigger picture than eternity? And, you know, we're here, I think we need to be prepared for eternity. And Did you grow up a Christian? Were you raised Christian? I, I was raised a Christian. I was taught that the Bible was the Word of God. I was taught about prophecy. I was taught about how Israel is a miracle. It cannot be there. The whole world tried to snub these people out for generations. And there it is, because the Bible said it's going to happen, and there they are. I once wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated about Christianity in, in the NFL, and it seemed pretty clear that there was an expectation on a lot of teams that you do a lot of prayer. If you had some players who just said, you know what, I respect all of you guys, but like, not my bag, I'm an atheist, could we just, could we just cut it out, I'll, I'll shoot hoops and I'll be kind to everyone, but enough with the prayer. How would you react to that? I'm actually more on that, that person's side than, than anybody else's. I, I, I don't think God counts up, you know, who's, Rebounds. Who, who's his and say, okay, whoever has the, the, the best religion, that's, that's who's going to win. I, I, I don't see that. The, the great uh, Christian evangelist Billy Graham once said, I, people ask me if I believe in answered prayer. He says, of course, 
I've seen God answer prayer. Uh, I know he answers prayer, except on the golf course. <laughs> there, there was a, a chaplain who was the chaplain for both the Boston Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers when they, were, when they had Dr. J and Larry Bird and all these guys. And he would conduct chapels for both teams, but they wouldn't meet together because they hated each other. They were rivals. So he'd do one chapel, then he'd do the other. And people, somebody was walking by and heard him actually praying. At one, at one meeting, he prayed for the Celtics to win, then he turned around and prayed for the 76ers to win. Now, that would be a miracle if that happened. But, uh, you know, I don't believe in using God for, uh, as, as who determines who wins an athletic contest. And uh, whatever stage anyone is in their seeking, you know, I, I rest on the promise that, that God promises that if you seek with all your heart, you'll find salvation. And uh, it's not for me to judge how if anybody's really seeking or not. My job was to win basketball games. Yeah, I, I don't believe that God intervenes in sports, uh, sporting events either. That's why I'm a Mets fan. Um, <laughs> clearly abandoned. But, you know, I know from watching the NBA today and, and talking to people who cover it, you see this thing that players do. Uh, it's halftime. They all run to the bench, take out their phones, and they go on Twitter to oh. see what people are saying about them. Is that something that makes any sense to you? Would you have handled this as a coach if, if you were still doing this actively? How, how do you respond to that? At some point, you have to give up the fight if you're going to lose the fight no matter what. But, you know, I, I, I think that the best thing is, say, when you come to the arena, put your phone away. When the game's over, if you need to get your phone out, go do what you have to do. You're here. You're on the clock. We're here to concentrate on, on trying to win this game and, and do it together. So... Um, that, that's not always the winning argument. You know, some people, why not? I can do this. And yeah, maybe they can, but I still, I, I hate it. I'm with you, but I'm old. Do you think it's harder to be an athlete today when there are those distractions? There are people saying things about you on the internet that you could access at any moment and let sort of infiltrate your, your focus. Yeah, it's another obstacle to being everything you can be as a, as a performer, or as, a, as an athlete, you know, as a teammate. I think one of the best skills you can have is to be a great teammate. You know, you have to, you certainly have to have, be able to run and jump and, you know, shoot the ball and see what's available, but to be engaged with your team and help bring them together. Uh, you know, if you don't want to play a team sport, go play tennis. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a dig at tennis? No, 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 okay. no. I love tennis, so, but, but you know, it's not, it's an individual sport. That's all I'm saying. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Fair enough. So we're at the JCC and I have to ask, like, have you ever played basketball here? I haven't played basketball in years. Ever since I had my knee and hip replaced, I said, that's, that's time to retire when that happens. But I played basketball every day of my life for five years at the Jewish Community Center in Phoenix, the old oh. Jewish Community Center. Joel Kramer's here. He was one of my teammates. And uh, I ride my bike to practice. And we had to wait. We couldn't start practice till the, the ladies, they, they weren't going to, you know, do their walking outside because it's hot. They'd walk around the gym and they wouldn't be done till nine o'clock. And we're sitting there in this little training room was no bigger than this stage. And uh, we couldn't go out on the floor that the ladies were done walking around and doing their, <laughs> their laps, the Jewish Community Center. That's, that's why, you know, I, players are so spoiled now. They have their own little training room and everybody has their own guy to give them a massage and, <laughs> you know I, I do have to laugh Red Auerbach used to say when people would come to the Boston Garden and it was a dump they had rats and you know 
uh, one shower that barely dribbled out and people would complain about it and he'd say hey if it was good enough for russell it's good enough for you <laughs> and uh you know that's how i feel you know there's two they won't even play two, uh, back-to-back games you know if there's a game friday and saturday they have to rest one game you know it's it's crazy well they want to rest on sunday go play basketball <laughs> you know your game scales you play it and so uh Mazeltov on your induction to the hall of fame thank you so that's much incredible how, how does it physically happen? Do they call? Do they send a letter? Is it an email? Well, um, it's different for everybody. There's a nomination process, and you have to wait five years after you've retired to be eligible. And uh, I waited about 35 years after <laughs> I retired. But I got nominated, uh, and then I passed the nomination process, and... So they tell you that on a certain date, you'll get a call either saying you made it or you didn't make it. And so on that day, are you like, I'm on not that leaving day, the house, I'm well, not playing tennis? I'm- some people are waiting by the phone, but, but one of the good things about it is the president, I'm not sure what his title is, but the, the head of the Hall of Fame is Jerry Colangelo, who was the, gener- the owner of the Suns, and he hired me to coach the Suns. Traded for me, then he traded me, brought me back, cut me, hired to be the coach, then fired me. But we love each other, and we have a history. He's the president of the Hall of Fame, and he called me early and let me know, so I didn't have to wait all that, wait it out. So I knew, he said, don't tell anybody, I told you. <laughs> and for all that, the prize is you get a trip to my hometown of Springfield, Massachusetts. Oh, Springfield, it's great. So did you go to the casino? I, I walked through it. You walked yeah. through it, you didn't hit the slots? No, no. All I, right, so one of the great privileges that, that we bestow on every single Gentile of the week is that you get the opportunity to ask an internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts he was just in Europe. Right. Certified by, the, by Bagelstein and Zabars and the Second Avenue Deli and Ratner's. Any question you want about Jews or Judaism? So do, do you have a question for us? I do. And um, I, I've thought about this quite a bit. As I've said, I, I love Israel. I, I've been there three times. We drafted the first uh, Hebrew uh, basketball player, uh, Omri Caspi, when I was in Sacramento. But um, been to Yad Vashem uh, a few times studied all I can about what happened with the Nazis. How did that happen? And so the same mentality exists in the world today, and you can, you can see it. And my, my question is, when there are people who are sworn to exterminating you, and they don't care what your politics are, because you're Jewish, you're going to die when we get in power. Why do a great number of Jewish people support causes, politics, that are lined up with those people. Whoa. And you thought he was just a basketball player. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've already warned you in the green room that you will receive about seven different opinions. Mark. Well, I, okay, so I think there's a number of answers. The one that I'll, that I'll give, and I'm excited to hear, we didn't talk in advance about what we were going to say, so I'm eager to hear what my brilliant co-hosts think. I mean, one thing I would say is that there are a lot of areas where certain people on certain sides are convinced, and we're talking amongst Jews here, that one side is clearly bad for, for the Jews or for Israel, and then there are people of an honest disagreement. So a great example here would be the Iran nuclear deal, right, where there are absolutely people who believe that the Iran nuclear deal 
is potentially genocidal for Jews because, because it allows Iran to get one step closer to a bomb, they are convinced, and because they would use that bomb against Israel, they are convinced, and, you know, and not for bad reasons, right? This is not a crazy line of thought. But there are people who sincerely believe, and these are also very bright people, who read the geopolitical situation differently and believe actually this was our best hope of keeping Iran from having a bomb. And this is not my area of expertise, but what I can say as somebody who knows people, as a, as, a, as a journalist, as a Jew journalist, as somebody who spent a lot of time with people on both sides is, there are really, really smart people who know the geopolitics very well on both sides, who believe that in the most selfish, chauvinistic way, this is what's good for the Jews. And so a lot of things fall into that category where they would deny that actually they're supporting a cause that's bad for the Jews. They would just say, they see it, they interpret the facts differently. So I'll, my answer will be to offer that cautionary note to a, to a really good question. You know, I, I look a lot of, at the, the conversations between particularly young, politically active Jews, and they really form two different camps, right? They are like right and left, essentially. And it seems really shocking, and the things you see said back and forth seem really shocking. And what's been instructive for me is to realize that actually this is not the first time where groups of Jews have diverged wildly on what they thought, where the idea of being an anti-Zionist Jew isn't new, right? Like there were always these crazy schisms between the Jewish community and it's a slippery slope for me, right? Because we pride ourselves on being this, this people who question, these people who, who debate, who, who interrogate everything we're told, right? And so this idea of the back and forth of ideas, the exchange of ideas is, is very much a hallmark of our, of our family. And so I think that it's, to me, just has, the rhetoric has gotten more poisonous. I think, but it's, I, I try to remind myself that this has always been the case. It just seems like it's more divisive than it normally is, but it's sort of always like this, and we sort of are always okay. And so I have this sense of hope that actually it's not as bad as it seems right now, and actually that being on one side doesn't actually mean that you're gonna call for the destruction, you're gonna help cause the destruction of the Jewish people, same with the other side. I mean, I, I wanna think that, there's, that we're sort of in this hyperbolic time where everyone's points are taken to the complete extreme. And so I'm trying to remind myself that it doesn't always work. I would just add that you remind me like, there are people who talk about intermarriage in the apocalyptic terms, other people talk about the Iran deal, right? And like we have people here tonight saying like, actually that's not necessarily. Oh my God, the Pew Report. The Pew Report. That's a reported Jewish, Jewish population survey. Leo. And so uh, being seated stage right tonight, uh, which is very appropriate for me, politically, emotionally speaking, uh, I do share the, the, the bafflement. Uh, however, I, I kind of want to also, like Stephanie, try to put it in historical perspective. We're going to celebrate you know, Hanukkah in, in a few weeks, uh, which is a holiday. And this is the story that we don't usually here. Usually it's just a small band of warriors, you know, fighting against the Greeks. Um, this story began when, you know, the Greeks come in and they basically say, okay, everyone, uh, everyone now accept our cosmopolitan Western values. Everyone take on Greek names. Everyone, some people were having reversed circumcisions to grow back their foreskins, which sounds very painful. Um, and, and so here's what that did to the Jewish community. Uh, it did to the Jewish community exactly what you're noticing happening in the Jewish community today, right? There were half of the people who said, you know what, that sounds like kind of a good deal. And there are half the people who said we'd rather die than do this. And I think the reason for this is more than historical, more than political. I think the reason for this is almost theological. You know, here you have a people uh, at the core of which uh, there is this 
uncomfortable yet essential element of chosenness, right? This is a people that begins when God says, well, you will be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And it's really natural for at least half of the people to say, yeah, I don't want that. That sounds like a lot of work. That sounds like some weird responsibility. You know what I want to do? I want to go to the gymnasium with the rest of the Greeks. I want to hang out. I want to just be a normal person. And then there are half of us who say, we totally accept it. And we understand this is a weird, tribalistic, throwback, atavistic type of thing. But that's who we are. Uh, and so the one thing I will say is this debate is very ancient. The second thing that I will say uh, with, with great pride and relief is that if you look at uh, historically, which group of Jews always wins this debate, it's only one group. It's the same group that won on Hanukkah. And I'm very grateful for that. How's that? Do you want to drop the mic? I think I just did. I learned something. I still don't understand, though. <laughs> <laughs> Coach, thanks for being our Gentile. Thank you. Coach, <laughs> Rabbi. Thank you. you have another podcast. Ooh, scandalous. Yeah. So it's called Take One, and I assume this is why you no longer return my emails or phone calls when I want to talk to you about unorthodox stuff. It is one of the reasons, because, you know, I thought, hey, you know what's actually less time-consuming than a weekly show? A daily show. It is amazing, and it's mid-February at this point, and you've kept it up, and you've done it every day, and I'm very, very impressed. But so our listeners are about to hear that, to get a taste, if they're not already listening to Take One, of what it is. But like, let's like way, way, way rewind to like Babylonia and tell me if you've never... We, we have talked about Dafyomi, I think, more than most people talk about Dafyomi. We had Adam Kirsch on. You've referenced it a few times. We even talk about Rabbi Seinsaltz in this here episode. But like, give me like the beginner's guide to Talmud. So the Bible, as as we know, is sort of all wrapped up by the time Jesus was born. So our year zero or so. But then something interesting happened. So Judaism was actually lived and experienced in those days very much as a temple-based religion. This is the second temple. This is the second temple. All the commandments that you had were around, you know, sacrifices in the temple, pilgrimages to the temple. Everything that you did revolved around the temple. And then... No spoilers. And then, one day in the year 70 CE, right, the temple was destroyed. And all of a sudden, you couldn't go to the temple and, and you couldn't exercise all these rites and sacrifices. So the rabbis get together. These are, by the way, the five rabbis that we talk about congregating all night in the Passover Haggadah. This is why these guys are so important, right? Rabbi Elazar ben Azarian, Rabbi Tarfon, etc. So these guys get together and they have a incredible metaphysical world-defining moment of asking the question, well, what do you do with this religion now that the temple no longer exists? And so their ingenious solution was we take everything and we put it in a book. In a book. Because one day they'll call us the people of the book. What a Jewish solution. So you would think that putting it in a book would mean just having a host of rules, right? Thou shalt this and thou shalt not that. But the rabbis were much smarter than that. They realize that if you do this, you're basically asking people to begin taking issue with all these commandments. Well, you know, in those times, I understand why they did this. But in our times, we have this kind of technology. And so we probably don't have to do that anymore. And then the whole thing kind of gets shuffled into this gooey, mushy mess of like, well, it's all a metaphor for love and tikkun olam anyway. And they didn't want that to happen. So instead of recording laws, they recorded 
arguments. Yay, that's like a precursor is, to our podcast. I know. It is the most Jewish incredible thing so ever. So what does that mean? So these rabbis sat around and started debating all the rules and all the traditions as they've experienced them. In many cases, I mean, they veer from like a, a deeply legalistic argument into like a totally like weird and bizarre story to some kind of moral for life. It is, a, it is a really kind of astonishingly diverse book. They concluded all these discussions uh, around the year 200, and they call this the Mishnah, but there was still a lot unexplained. So the next generations of rabbis, mostly operating in Babylonia, present-day Iraq, for about 400 years more, they ask questions on top of the questions. Questions like, when do you say the Shema? What counts as a proper sukkah? You know, this is a really funny discussion. Like, one said, oh, for a sukkah to be kosher, what if one of the walls is like an elephant? Uh, they compiled the second set, which is the Gemara. Together, the Mishnah and the Gemara are commonly referred to as the, drumroll please, Talmud. The Talmud. Okay, so what is this podcast that you are hosting? This book is intimidating. First of all, you walk up to it, the pages look weird, right? We, Google it. It's like a text in the center, a block of text, and then like text around it's it. It's basically the precursor to the internet. It's the precursor to hyperlinking. It looks really intimidating. And the discussion sometimes could get really overwhelming to the point that you ask, well, I don't really get why are we spending all this time debating what's the proper blessing to say if you have boiled millet, right? But here's the thing. The Talmud is a profound, beautiful, important system of thought. It is what has taught our people how to, how to be in the world, how to think in the world, how to see and make sense of the world. And it is this immense treasure that belongs to all of us. You do not have to be religious. You do not have to have gone to yeshiva. You do not have to even live and obey by the laws. But what you shouldn't do is toss aside this immense treasure that belongs to you. And so the idea of the podcast is to make this accessible to everyone by having an 8 to 10 minute show every day, focusing on just one question from the page and bringing on respectable, world-celebrated Talmudic scholars such as yourself. No, you always say that, but so you actually no, but have people... But, that's, but, but no. that's actually true. I think the point of the podcast is to make sure that everyone feels connected to it. And so when there's a question that I actually think you yes. would have a great you know, insight into, then I actually want to hear from you. I don't just want you know, rabbis who will tell me... But you have that. I think it's important to say you have, have that. We have that too. We have rabbis of every, every shape, size, gender, form of belief, anything. And then you also go to regular people. Like you had Judy Gold on, you've had actor... I mean, you have had a lot of people who Hollywood are not... Hollywood actors. Like, what's the goal? Why is it different from all other Daf Yummy podcasts? Because there are a bunch. The difference here is that this is really meant to strengthen the point that the Talmud belongs to all of us and that the questions that it raises are questions that are still relevant to life today and relevant even to the lives of people who aren't necessarily observant Jews or even Jewish at all. So the idea is like you're bringing that to a very modern but very relevant place and then that is much more actually meaningful. Right. And this week there was a question um, in one of the pages that we actually literally get from listeners of this here show all the time, which is, what do I actually need to know to be a good Jew? The rabbis talk about this concept of am ha'aretz, or an ignoramus, and they ask, like, well, what does one need to know and do in order not to be called an ignoramus? And this is something that our listeners ask us, you know, repeatedly, and I thought it would be great to call Reb Butnik and Reb Oppenheimer over to address this question. Let's see how we did. Here is our joint debut 
on Leah Leibowitz's Take One podcast. It's the People's Talmud. <laughs> Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that gives you just one page of Talmud a day. The sugiya, or the issue, at hand today is so meaningful and so weighty that it took not one Talmudic experts, but two. My dear co-host on Unorthodox, Stephanie Butnik, hello. Thanks for having me back. And live from Connecticut, Mark, the Korderarov Oppenheimer. I am currently holding a Fabrangan with the many Hasidim I am gathering around me in the Corduroy Court. I, I am sure you do, in your Hasidic Court in New Haven. So guys, in Unorthodox, the podcast that we all host together, we frequently get questions from listeners who say, you know, what is it that should really be at the core of my Jewish education? I want to have a Jewish home. I want to teach my kids the basics. But, but what does that even mean? And it just so happens that today's stuff actually raises this question. I want to read you a really, really, really brief segment. Uh, the rabbis are mentioning a concept of am ha'aretz, or loosely translated, an ignoramus, someone who doesn't know uh, anything. And then, of course, in Talmudic fashion, they're trying to figure out, well, what precisely does this mean? And here is a snippet of their debate. The sages taught, who is an ignoramus? Who is an am ha'aretz? One who does not recite Shema in the evening and morning. Rabbi Yoshua says, an Am Ha'aretz is one who does not don phylacteries or tefillin. Ben Azai says, an Am Ha'aretz is one who does not have ritual fringes on his garment. Rabbi Natan says, an Am Ha'aretz is one who does not have a mezuzah on his doorway. Rabbi Natan Bar Yosef says, an Am Ha'aretz is one who has children, but who does not want them to study Torah, so he does not raise them to engage in Torah study. Etc., etc., etc. And on and on they go, trying to figure out what is it that you need to not do in order to be considered an ignoramus Jewishly. And since you are two of the most esteemed rabbinic scholars I know, what would have been your definition? What would it take to be considered an Amaaretz these days? Or, or do we do away with this definition altogether? Look, I think we should be bringing ignoramus back into the vernacular, right? Like, I haven't been called an ignoramus in years, um, probably since the Babylonian <laughs> Talmud was written. But I, 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 it is interesting because, yes, it's a judgmental word, but it also, there's sort of a, a level of, of something that they're trying to ascertain here, right? Like, do you do this or not? Or not do this? Like, what is the line at, over which you are a respected member of this faith, essentially? And so instead of ignoramuses, today it feels like we're like, oh, he's not a real Jew, not a good Jew, not a, not good a, Jew. Not a learned Jew, whatever. You know, there's, there's so many ways in which we are saying you only go to temple on two days a year, you're not a real Jew. You converted, you're not. A, I mean, there are so many. It's horrible, right? It's, it's these things that we are, we're still trying to find those lines to define who is and who isn't one of us, right? And we're doing that outside the Jewish world, too. I, I too, think it's a, it's a good word. And of course, I really like, you know, you, you glossed over the, the literal translation right which is like a person of the earth it's like a person who hasn't been civilized a person who hasn't built shelter and joined society right someone who's basically no better than the beasts you know i love beasts but of course the point is to be civilized and when i think about what it is that 
should get you welcomed into the community, right? Like what the, 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 the rabbis are asking, who gets to count in a quorum? Who gets to count in the quorum to, to, to pray after the meals? Who gets to count in the quorum uh, for the minion um, to, to do the daily prayer service? Who gets to count as a member of civilized society? I think that it's actually someone who's able to listen. And, and maybe one, one proxy for that is, are you able to hear when people tell you that you've been wrong? Can you offer apologies? Can you engage in the kind of discourse that enables you to say like, I hear you, I honor what you're saying, I was wrong and I'll do better in the future. I think that kind of intercourse is about as close as we can get to saying whether someone has been properly civilized and therefore is a good member of the community. How about that? An ignoramus is one who can never admit that they're wrong. I love that. And and yet I, I want to play the the part of Bet Shammai here, of, of the hardcore, stringent non-ignoramus. non-ignoramus faction and say, do we then really not make any requirements and any sort of attempt to engage with learning? I mean, can we say like, okay, it's great to have the passion, it's great to have the desire, but if you really want to be a part of this, whoever you are, you have to go ahead and do something. We don't care what it is, but you know, study something, learn something, do something, because this is a faith that is, or a tradition, or whatever you want to call it, that is predicated in large part on on actions, right? On on actually observing life a certain way, even if you're not kind of all the way in it. Yes, like like I think everyone should watch Shit's Creek, right? Jews and non. I think I think all Jews should watch Shit's Creek. I, I think I that's concur. really really important. <laughs> look, I think you know if we talk about that, look, read Cynthia Ozick, read Dara Horn. I mean, I think there are so many ways that are actually. In the modern sense, you don't actually have to read. I mean, look, we are here because you're reading the t- every page of the Talmud, but not everyone does that, right? So let's find some other benchmarks for people to feel as though they are learned in Jewish life. And so, you know, we get this question a lot from people who are converting, who say, like, what what are the seminal, like, cultural texts that I should be consuming? And, you know, for a long time, we said Woody Allen movies. I We could still say that. I you know, with we, a little bit, of, that a with little a little bit, bit more problematizing. Right. But you know, what else should we be? Is it Philip Roth? Like, who? What else should we, people be doing? Um, I think that's really good. Another way, another thing I hear you saying, Stephanie, is that you have to have some urge towards self improvement, right? That you can't sit back and kind of smugly say, like, "Good enough, I'm perfect." Like, right. I don't. I, I don't have to think this. You know, I once had uh, someone I knew who um, told me, like, "I'm not fasting this year. I've been really good this year. Like, th- this wow. year I didn't do anything wrong." <laughs> Wow. I love that person. I was like, geez. Ignoramus like, geez alert. Louise. And um, like that sort of smugness. And this actually was a pretty good person. Like, I definitely can think of worse pre- people I knew, but they were people who at least knew like, yeah, I've I've got some issues, right? This was someone who's basically pretty good, but thought that she was perfect. She had no urge towards self-improvement at all. And that, that I found that rather chilling. It's also weird that they didn't say, you know, I'm not fasting because instead I'm going to do this. Or actually, I don't think, like to say I, that's fundamentally disregards the purpose of the day, which is that we all have areas for improvement. Right. But I do think that now is like the self-improvement era, right? Everyone wants to be getting better. Everyone wants to be searching for wellness, whatever that means. Hashtag self-care, all that stuff. And, you know, I, I actually kind of read this discussion by the rabbis as very much in this thread, right? Because you'll note that usually the machloket or, or the kind of disagreement between rabbis is, is between two very solid interpretations that are each rooted in traditions. Here, they're literally each coming up with a completely different yeah. and very personal thing. I think this is kind of what they're saying. They're saying, look, man, we don't really care what it is as long as you do something. And so you see in that 
disagreement, not that everyone is so stringently in their own path. Because to me, what worries me is that all these single people are saying, you must do this. So then we get a whole group of people, all the disciples of different leaders who are saying, oh, no, no, I wear phylacteries. I, I say phylacteries and I wear phylacteries. I'm better than you. And even though you have payus, you've grown, grown payus, you're actually not as righteous as I. See, I find it, this whole thing, a little more problematic than you do. You take a more generous approach. You think it's just an invitation to a hundred different divergent... Well, yeah, the people who are like, well, I watch Succession, so I'm better than you who watch Schitt's Creek. Schitt's Creek. And no, I actually watch Billions. I'm not sure they're saying I'm better. They're saying, I mean, the, the point of the argument is to say, like, what's a standard? And he's saying, well, here's my standard. And someone else saying, here's my standard. And they're in, obviously, in dialogue around different standards. It seems to me that all of them are fighting against complacency. All of them are saying, like, you're not at liberty to just walk through your day saying, like, yeah, I've got this. I'm good. That that's the attitude that we want to fight against. I like that. That's a, I like that a lot. I think if we could take no other lesson here today from these wise old rabbis, uh, it's precisely this. It's we don't really necessarily care all that much what it is that you do as long as it is something, as long as you're constantly on the path of self-improvement, and as long as you're always asking, what's a new and interesting and meaningful way for me to engage with this tradition? Rav Stephanie Butnick. Corduroy Rav Mark Oppenheimer, thank you very much. I'd like to be the athleisure Rav. <laughs> the athleisure Rav and the corduroy Rav. <laughs> I would like a sound effect that is the pants of my corduroy suit rubbing together. <laughs> that is a bridge too far. <laughs> Mark Oppenheimer, Stephanie Batnik, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Goodbye. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Magazine. If you enjoyed this show, please go rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly section of Reading Daf Yomi. I'm your host, Leah Leibowitz, our producer is Josh Cross. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope you've made your day a little bit more Talmudic, and we'll see you again soon. That was Mark and Stephanie joining Liel on an episode of Tablet's Take One podcast, which you can subscribe to wherever you get this show. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live. To book us or advertise, email me, producer Josh Cross, at jcross, with a K, at tabletmag.com. And of course, you need to wear and carry Unorthodox, too. Hit bit.ly slash unorthoshirt and find the latest in Unorthodox shirts, mugs, and onesies. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Alana Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our advertising maven is Sue Kaufman. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by one of my favorite rabbis, Rabbi Mordechai Lightstone. We usually come to you from Argo Studios, but this episode mostly comes to you from the Valley of the Sun JCC in Scottsdale, Arizona. Shalom, friends. Should we just stop there? Yes.